in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 17 of Ancient Rome Refocused. The title of this podcast is Growing Up Cleopatra. On the show, we have Vicki Alvera Schechter. She wrote the book Cleopatra's Moon, named one of the best books of 2012 by the Center for Children's Literature. It is a coming-of-age story of Cleopatra's real-life daughter, Selene, and offers a glimpse of both Egypt and Rome during Rome's transition into the Age of Empire. It earned excellent reviews in Publishers Weekly, The Wall Street Journal, and The Los Angeles Times. Vicki Alvera Schechter has kindly granted us permission to read from her book, Cleopatra's Moon. Before we get into it, let's have a bit of context. There is a major event and a major character in this novel. Let's start with the donations of Alexandria. This was basically a political act by Mark Antony and Cleopatra VII. Lands held by Rome were distributed by Antony to Cleopatra's children. The donations are dated around the autumn of 34 BCE, before the Common Era. This act of giving away land was the final breach that led to Actium. As you can guess, Rome was not in the habit of giving away things. The title of her book, Cleopatra's Moon, is referencing Cleopatra's daughter. Selene is ancient Greek for moon goddess. Selene is a fascinating character in history where we wish there was more information to flesh out what must have been a fascinating life. She survived the aftermath of Actium, was raised in the household of her enemy Octavian, and was eventually married off to Juba, the second of Numidia. Juba was a child hostage of Julius Caesar and was raised by the Romans. Upon her marriage, Selene was appointed queen of Mauritania. It ranged westwards from Algeria across Morocco to the Atlantic. A poem was found, an epigram to her death. The moon herself grew dark, rising at sunset, covering her suffering in the night, because she saw her beautiful namesake, Selene, breathless, descending to Hades. With her she had had the beauty of her light in common and mingled her own darkness with her death. special thanks to Nancy for her reading of the book, Cleopatra's Moon. She starts at chapter one with the subtitle, In the Seventh Year of My Mother's Reign. 
Part 1 Egypt the gods to fall upon my family like starved lions in a Roman arena. I suspect it began in my seventh year, on a day that I once considered one of the happiest of my life. It was a dazzling, sun-drenched summer morning in Alexandria by the sea. Outside the royal quarter, with the Mediterranean sparkling behind us, and rows of date palms swaying before us. My mother and brothers and I sat alongside one another on individual thrones. We waited for my father, the great Roman general Marcus Antonius, to finish parading through the city and join us atop our grand ceremonial dais. The ceremony today would celebrate his victory over Armenia his eastern enemy, and we, his family, and all of Alexandria would rejoice with him. Even in the shade of our royal canopy, sweat trickled down my neck and back. The ostrich feather fans the servants waved over us provided little relief. Strong breezes occasionally gusted from the royal harbor cooling us with the salty bite of the sea. Despite the discomfort and the glare from the beaten silver platform at our feet, I forced myself to keep still, as Mother had instructed, my eyes trained just above the horizon. Zosima, who had carefully painted my face, had forbidden me from squinting in the bright light. I was not to ruin the heavy black coal around my eyes and eyebrows, and under no circumstances to cause the green malachite painted on my lids to flake off. I was not even to turn my head. I would follow all the rules perfectly. I swore to myself I would make Mother proud. But excitement and curiosity burbled in my blood as I fought to stay still stealing side glances whenever I could. I especially treasured my glimpses of mother, Queen Cleopatra VII. She sat on a golden throne, looking as resplendent as one of the giant marble statues guarding the tombs of the old ones. Diamonds twinkled in a jungle of black braids on her ceremonial wig. Carnelian and emeralds over her golden, form-fitting, pleated gown. In one hand, she held a golden ankh of life, while the other clasped the striped crook and flail of her divine rulership. Her stillness radiated power like a lioness pausing before the pounce. It left me breathless with awe. 
I sat up straighter, trying to emulate her, puffing with pride at the realization that only Mother and I were dressed as true rulers of Egypt. She is the goddess Isis, and I is the moon goddess, Nephysis. After all, was I not named for the moon? My brother may have been called Alexandros Helios for the sun, but I was Cleopatra Selene, the moon. I wore a flowing dress that reminded me of the liquid metal that the scientists at our great library described as living silver. A silver diadem of the moon sat atop my own thickly braided ceremonial wig. Even my sandals flashed silver. I had never seen my beloved city so packed by the tens of thousands Alexandrians and Egyptians flooded the wide avenues and byways, desperate to catch a glimpse of us or a father on his parade route. The richest of the noble Greek families sat on tiered benches in the square before us while tradesmen, merchants, and the poor spilled into the streets, squirming and jostling for position. Some even shimmied up trees, climbed onto the shoulders of the statues of my ancestors, and scrabbled to the tops of pediments and roofs to get a better view of us. The roar of the crowd as my father approached in his chariot sounded like waves crashing against the rocks on Pharos Island, home of our great lighthouse. Tata climbed onto the dais to join us, his golden armor gleaming, his face soaked with sweat but shining with joy. He looked like a god, the god of war. In his deep bass, Father began. I stand before you as imperator to the greatest of all civilizations, made even greater by the loyalty and fealty of its allies. Today, 
We remind the world that it is far, far wiser to be Rome's friend rather than her enemy. Our people roared in agreement. The foolish king Artavartus of Medea thought to test Rome's strength, he continued, the crowd groaning at the king's stupidity. He sought to ally with Rome and Egypt's enemy in a greedy bid for power and riches. He thought to claim our weapons and weaken us, but he could not. For Rome and Egypt are blessed by the gods, our victory proof of the favor with which the immortal ones hold us. I lost track of Tata's speech then, started counting the golden beads on the fan slave's broad collar. I had gotten up to 47 after having to start over several times when Father's voice cut through my reverie. It is time, he announced, to make my dispositions of war, to reward Egypt for her unceasing loyalty. The crowd whooped and stumped. I perked up. Tata was about to bestow his gifts to us, his family. To me, my mind raced with the possibilities. Was I to receive a new crown from his plunderings? A golden chariot? Or perhaps an exotic beast, maybe even one that breathed fire? Tata turned toward my two-year-old brother, Ptolemy Philadelphus, who sat beside me. Tali looked just like our Tata, with a head of shining dark curls, mischievous brown eyes, and the barrel-chested body of a bull. The crowds had swooned with adoration at the first sight of him, swaggering in his tiny military cloak and boots. To my youngest son, Ptolemy XVI, Philadelphos, father bellowed as the crowd hushed in anticipation. I grant the lands of Phoenicia, Syria, and Cilicia. The people roared. I drew a breath, stunned. Father was giving us kingdoms. I forgot to keep my head facing forward and turned to Tali. He scowled furiously, wagging his chubby legs in his toddler-sized throne as the noise reverberated around us. Worried that he might begin to cry or have a tantrum, I took his pudgy hand in mine and bent toward his ear. Look at Tata, I instructed. He's talking to you. Tali locked eyes with Father. When Tata grinned at him, Tali grinned back, showing all his little milk teeth. Then he toddled forward, Tata, to the crowd's cooing delight. One of the guards intercepted him and escorted the little general off the dais. To my daughter, Princess Cleopatra VIII, Selina, father called, and I felt the attention of thousands land on me like a physical force, an energy that made me sit up straighter and raise my chin despite my racing heart. I confer Saranaka and Crete where she will rule as queen. 
May she rule with as much wisdom as her namesake. I was queen, queen of Saranaka and Crete. As the people thundered their approval, Tata caught my eye and winked. Forgetting protocol again, I grinned and inclined my head. This sent the crowds roaring even louder, and I heard my name chanted over and over again. I marveled at the power pulsating all around us, power freely laid at our feet, ours for the taking. I wanted to jump up to hug my Tata, to do anything but continue sitting like a block of marble. But of course I would not disappoint Mother. I held my breath pretending to be as solemn and immobile as the giant statues of the Great Ones. Tata turned his attention to my twin, Alexandros. To my son, Alexandros Helios, I bestow the kingdom of Armenia, where he will rule with his betrothed princess, Ayato of Medea. crowds whooped in honor of Father's decisive victory in the region, but I refused to steal even a side glance in my twin's direction. The interlopers sat between us. The black-eyed, silken-haired little princess was nothing more than a royal hostage, a guarantee that her father the king would stay loyal to Tata. But I could find no warmth in my heart for her. The way Alexandros acted around Hyatope, it was as if Hermes himself had come down from the Mount Olympus and hand-delivered her to him. Until she showed up, he and I had lived as if we still shared a womb, playing, sleeping, eating, and laughing together. But now, it was Hyatope, my twin, sought out at first light and played with until dusk when Ra's sunboat descended into the dark lands. I would not forgive her for taking him from me. Still, our people continued to cheer at the announcement, celebrating the return of a strong and vital Egypt, Armenia, and Saranaka had been under our dominion when our Macedonian Greek ancestor Alexander the Great and our dynasty's founder, his brother Ptolemy I, took Egypt nearly 300 years ago. We Greeks had ruled ever since, and now, thanks to Tata, we were stronger than we had been in centuries. In addition, Tata called, I bequeath to Alexandros Helios and his betrothed rule over all the lands of Parthia. I barely noticed the undercurrent of bewilderment that rippled through the crowds, the whispers of, how could the general give away lands he has not yet conquered? After all, my Tata was the best general in the world. Of course he would conquer Parthia. Tata then turned his attention to my older half-brother, Caesarion, the only son of mother's first husband, Julius Caesar. 
At 13, Caesarion was slim and tall, and I thought he looked magnificent in the kilt and pectoral of a pharaoh combined with his father's blood-red Roman cloak. Ptolemy the 15th Philopater Philometer Caesar, I name you the true heir and only son of Gaius Julius Caesar, and I name you the king of Egypt. From the corner of my eye I spied Caesarion lifting his chin, and my heart swelled with love and pride. My brother, the king, the king of Egypt. But again, murmurs of unease snaked through the clouds, accompanied by whispers of a name I did not then know. Octavianus. I blinked, confused. Why should a Roman name be on our people's lips when Caesarion was rightly being named their king? I tried to make sense of the murmurs. Isn't Octavianus Caesar's heir? Is Antonius challenging him? Some in the crowd even made the sign of protection against evil. I stole a glance at Mother. She let out a breath that sounded like a hiss, and although her face kept its expression of queenly impassivity, I saw a flicker of concern settle on the tiny space between her brows. But it may have only been a trick of the fierce Egyptian light, for when I looked again, Mother's face appeared as majestic and untroubled as it always had. Tata glanced at Mother, and his eyes crinkled before he turned back to the crowds. To my wife, Cleopatra VII, Philopator, Queen of Egypt, and overlord of all the kingdoms bestowed today. A rumble of cheers, shouts, and joyous exultations interrupted him almost as if our people were thrilled to move on to what they knew and loved. The cheers swelled until I felt them vibrating in my chest bones. Mother did not move as the entire city chanted, Isis, Isis, hail Isis, Isis our queen. When the wave of noise crested, Tata began again. Today, he boomed, I name my wife, Queen of Kings, ruler of the two lands, overlord of our children's territories and partner in managing Rome's interests in the East. I have a vision of the future, a vision of cooperation, not destruction, born up by the loyalty of client kings and queens, Rome cannot be stopped. He swept his arm toward the lighthouse. And like Pharaoh's that shines into the night, Egypt serves as a beacon to Rome's future. A future of partnership, a future of immeasurable wealth. 
a future that no man or king can rend asunder. The whoops of joy became deafening. Tata grinned and held both arms up in exultation. He bid mother stand next to him. The bright Egyptian light seemed somehow concentrated on them. I had never seen them look more godlike. This is Rob. I am talking to Vicki Alvira Schechter, uh, who wrote the book Cleopatra's Moon, and uh, we have her on the line. Uh, thank you for coming to Ancient Rome Refocused. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Could you tell us about your book, Cleopatra's Moon? Yes, it's the story of Cleopatra's daughter, the only uh, one of her four children to survive to adulthood. Uh, she had three boys, uh, one child with Julius Caesar, three with Mark Antony. So she is the daughter of Mark Antony. And I was floored that there was a child who survived that family and made it to adulthood and, and even ruled. And yet, for the most part, most people don't know about her. So I just, um, I became intrigued with, with that story, and and so it follows a little bit before uh, Actium, uh, and then according to the ancient sources, she was brought to Rome and brought up in Octavian's home by his sister Octavia, who was Mark Anthony's recently divorced wife. So I mean, you just couldn't have a more complicated soap operaish situation. So. They have not really any history books about her because there's not enough information. Uh, and my first two books were nonfiction biographies for kids. And I realized if I wanted to write about her, I would have to go the fiction route. So this was my first foray into fiction, although I worked as hard as I could to work within the facts that we knew. Why do you think young people like stories about Cleopatra? The category of the book is young adults, although I – have gotten um, more feedback, I think, from adults who read it. Um, I wouldn't want anybody to think that that it's it's written at a lower level in any way. But it is primarily marketed to young adults. The, the issue, I think, is there's always a fascination. Like when in, when kids or young teens or even older teens, if they're doing ancient civilizations, there's usually a handful of uh, girls at, who want to do their special report on Cleopatra. There's this enduring fascination with her. And, you know, it just seemed like 
a way to satisfy that fascination, but, but give it a little bit more depth and, and dig underneath some of the uh, fallacies about her and make her, a, you know, a, a flawed human being, but still a human being in the story. Well, your Facebook page shows that you visit a lot of schools. Uh, yes. Talking about your book and history in general, what do young people, or at least readers, get right about Cleopatra, and what do they get wrong? It comes uh, on several levels. Their, their interest is because they've heard the name, and they have to go through the history very quickly, so they get the broad brush, and there just aren't a lot of female rulers uh, or players in the ancient world. So, you know, the, the names like Cleopatra, Hatshepsut, and and some and Bodicea, they, you know, that, there's not a whole lot to choose from. I know there's Zenobia, but the kids aren't going to necessarily recognize that name. So there's the name recognition. Uh, and when I talk to older teens about my book, um, I'll, I'll, I'll describe something, an exercise that I do. It's but I open it by asking them to do a word association game, you know, and I'll say, okay, tell me what jumps into your mind when I say Julius Caesar. So, you know, we get all kinds of murder, general, warrior, you know, all kinds of ruler, emperor, all kinds of stuff. Then I say Cleopatra, and we get Queen, Nile, Egypt. But by the third or fourth word association, you definitely hear at least one kid mutter under their breath, slut, whore. Oh, my God. I know that that's, how, that's why I set up this exercise. So I just stopped them right there, and I said, well, I was kind of curious about how long it would take for you guys to get there. So that's how deep that, that preconception about Cleopatra is. But then I stop and say, okay, guys, you know, there's usually some giggles and some uncomfortable shifting in the, in the chairs. And I'll say, uh, tell, me, tell me what you call girls that you don't like or that make you feel threatened in any way? What's the first word that you go to? And they get very sheepish. Slut, <laughs> or, um, and yeah, it's, it's actually very, well, not surprising, but it's very prevalent that kids and girls will use that against each other, even if there's no relationships or sexual relationships involved in the vicinity. But that's the go-to insult. So, that's how I, I break in and say, okay, let's look at somebody who started this technique of undermining a powerful woman by calling her a slut and a whore because she's the quintessential story of, of that. She, she was undermined uh, politically, personally, was made to be an unreliable, frightening, power-hungry whore. And, of course, I've got their attention by that point which is part of the game, but also part of that I want them to see things don't exist in a vacuum. It's easy, easy enough to say, oh, well, you know, we all talk like that to each other because of the influence of pop culture, of rap or whatever. What if we went back 2,000 years and we saw this connection to the past in looking at the way that a powerful woman, a woman who is threatening to somebody, is taken down a notch and then labeled. I started to say that, yes, rap and popcorn and all that certainly encourages that. But what if we could look all the way back and see, you know, some ancient examples of this? And, and, and so it kind of hooks them in. 
And that's really what I love to do is just, you know, to remind people we haven't really changed that much, you know, and, and that's what ancient history does is it, it holds up a mirror to ourselves, but because we're looking backwards, nobody feels personally attacked. <laughs> so we can look, so we can discuss certain views and, and certain events without people getting their egos involved because it took place so long ago. Do you think that uh, young people are basically ignorant about ancient history? I do. It, it's uh, it's quite frustrating. In here, I'm in Georgia, and here in Georgia, they completely removed the teaching of ancient history until high school. They get a small piece of of it in third grade when they study democracy, but that's you know, that's too young, <laughs> I think. But anyway, the the point is, there's this, like, oh, that's that's not important. We need to, you know, do this or do that. And and so you do get a sense with kids that the, there's just no depth of, of understanding of huge cultural forces and, and our own roots. And so, yeah, it's, I, I find it a little bit distressing. But at the same time, there are a lot of schools teaching Latin now. Uh, and even starting at the middle school level. And that's very encouraging. And the only way to really make Latin more interesting for kids is uh, what teachers are doing is to start telling these stories. I thought they were getting away from Latin. Are you saying that some schools are going back to it? Yes. I think they've, like, for example, at my daughter's high school, she can take it for three years. Uh, my son's high school only had it for two years. Private schools have been having it consistently for quite a long time, I think people are making the connection that a good understanding of Latin and Latin roots and so forth helps you. So in this, in testing, so in this, uh, oh, we have to get our test rates up, uh, we can work perhaps on our vocabulary and reading by teaching them some Latin. So there, it's it's definitely happening i'm sure that there are many latin teachers who wish it were happening uh, more but it there does seem to be some small movement toward having more latin classes and and i think you know some kids will go in going god i just need to get a better sat grade so i'm just going to take latin because i've heard it really really improves and, uh, and my understanding is the studies do show that those who take latin do markedly better in their vocabulary and reading and comprehension than those who don't so they know this. They take it for those reasons. So how do we keep them interested? We start telling them the stories that they may have heard or, you know, are curious about. And, and then some of them decide that they want to continue studying, uh, not just Latin, but history. Do you think that Cleopatra Selene lived a happy life? You know, I said, uh, that's a, it's such an interesting question because that actually never occurred to me <laughs> because – you know, here here you have a, a a child who a person who believed that she would follow in her mother's footsteps and rule Egypt and rule it in alignment with Rome, given that her father was Roman. That there would be some you know strong connection. That these would be the things that I would imagine she would think. So not only is that future ripped away from her, but in a short amount of time she loses. Her older brother, I, I didn't have room to put in um, Antillus, which is another brother. I had to c cut him out, but he was also murdered, uh, beheaded, 
uh, in Alexandria. That was uh, Mark Antony's eldest son. So she lost two brothers right away. She lost her parents. She lost her future. She lost ownership of her kingdom. She, I mean, she lost. And by the time the story is done, she's lost everybody. So that's a boatload of grief right there. So the happiness is, you know, how, yeah, that you can be happy, but you, you still, I think anybody who's, who's experienced that kind of loss always, you know, has, has a little bit of a, of a shadow with, I don't know that any, anybody ever really gets, happy after having that kind of loss. What kind of research did you do for the book? Well, this is the book came out of a biography that I actually wrote uh, about Cleopatra. It was called uh, it's called Cleopatra Rules: The Amazing Life of the Original Teen Queen. And that, that was written for like middle school students, so younger than than the students for the the Cleopatra's Moon. And what ha- happened of course is that I just it was a biography, and I, and I write it in a conversational way. I want the kids to not feel like, oh, my God, this is so boring. But these are real people, real stories, fascinating, funny, shocking, whatever. And I started seeing this this whole perception of Cleopatra and and how it's only been really in the last decade or two that scholars are starting to say, you know, everything was written – about her by the Romans who had a real uh, need to make her look evil and dangerous. So the last 10 years or so, there have been a lot of scholars who are kind of looking and saying, we don't have anything of hers, but let's start reevaluating every line that we come across and see based on the evidence in Egypt and, and elsewhere what are we looking at here in terms of reevaluating the perceptions we have about Cleopatra? So, so I read the ancient sources, primarily Plutarch, Dio, uh, Tacitus, and most mostly Plutarch because he's really the only one that goes into depth in Antony's story. And then I went to the second story sources and started reading what the, the modern scholars are, are saying about what Plutarch said because Plutarch had an agenda, and you know it was. And really, when everybody agrees, Octavian slash Augustus was the most amazing propagandist of all. I mean, he left us the Aeneid by Virgil, which is a propaganda piece. Gorgeous, poetic, amazing, but it was a propaganda piece to vindicate his rule, his connection to Venus. And even, I think, in the novel, I have a scene with Celine and Virgil and, and Augustus at a, a banquet where he, Augustus, he, uh, in the, in my novel, he asks Virgil to tell me about the scene where Aeneas makes the decision to leave his foreign queen and do right by Rome. And she hears that as distinctly as, as a needle to her. You know, this is what Marcus Antonius should have done. If he'd been like, you know, so, so, so again, everything had to be filtered through her point of view. So, you know, on the inside, she's having to act very, you know, uh, no real reactions, but on the inside, she's like, can't he ever let it go? Is there no time? He can't ever like give me a jab about my mother, you know, uh, that, you know, he had to leave his, his whore queen. It was the right thing to do. So, so, so the research, I guess, is back to the question is, that I used ancient sources and secondary sources, and 
then, and that's really what prompted writing the novel, because there were a couple of things. Uh, when I read Plutarch, there was this one line that completely changed my perception of Cleopatra, one line that I probably had read dozens of times. Until one day I stopped and said, oh, my God, what's he saying here? And the line is when Octavian is, uh, Mark Antony is dead, he's, um, he's got Cleopatra, he's captured her, and they're negotiating. What are they negotiating for? He's already, you know, there's that question, that he's already conquered Alexandria, and he had to pay for the war after all. So, but one of, the one line of Plutarch is that during these negotiations, he attacked her with threats to her children as if with siege engines. Ah. And again, it's just one little line that you just move. It's like almost a parenthetical phrase and then you move on. And all of a sudden I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, so we have this picture of this greedy, rapacious woman and so on. But the one thing, the only weakness she has at this point in the game is her children. It's shifted by perception of her. So here she's desperately trying to negotiate for the lives of her children. It suddenly made her a mom. You know, it was like she's a human being who had four kids. At that point, Caesarian had not been murdered. She was trying desperately to, I'm sure, keep him from being murdered and, you know, probably trying desperately to to save the lives of the younger children. So, but we don't really hear about that when when we talk about Cleopatra. It just changed everything for me in terms of understanding that this was, you know, yes, a powerful woman, and yes, I'm sure, you know, just like any ruler, she had some deep, dark sides and so on. But at the same time, he wasn't negotiating with her for gold or riches. He had gone to her uh, soft spot, to her weakest point, and that was her children. So that changed how I approached my portrayal of her. No less strong, no less savvy, but but committed to preserving the lives of her children. My God, what must it have been like to have Cleopatra as a mother? You know, every teenager has mother issues. And, my, you know, we're talking about mother issues on a royal scale here. So they just it just got into my head that I, I couldn't get my questions answered by reading anything on her. So then it became, well, I'll just write her story and went from there. What is important for people to know about Cleopatra, or her daughter for that matter? Well, there's so much to learn. One is that we have to look a little deeper than what her enemies said about her. When I talk to teens, I say, imagine if Lex Luthor was writing Superman's biography. How do you think Superman Uh... would come out looking? (laughs) Ooh, not so good. Mm. Exactly. So. So what we have is her her enemies writing her story. So it's important to keep that in mind when we read things, you know. And, and with older kids, I'll say, uh, you know, what if you, what if the person you hated the most was asked to describe you and to talk tell stories about you? It would it would not be comfortable. So it's so in, in order to be fair, we need to look a little bit deeper. And what we have is a, a woman who, who was queen at seventeen. Over her older sisters, by the way. So her father made her queen, uh, probably looked at the lineup of kids and said, well, she's the smartest. So, um, so we have a pretty wily person here. Very, very creative. She was able to convince enough people to follow her into battle. 
So her story is is all about some of these. For me, it's it's important for people to learn these other stories about her that that make her way more interesting. That she spoke seven languages and she spoke them so that、uh, she wouldn't have to use interpreters、uh, when diplomats came. You know, which I used in my novel and and had had made the kids having to to learn as many languages as their mother knew, things like that. Where the Hollywood version of Cleopatra is that she was slightly crazy, petty. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about、uh, George Bernard Shaw's.、Um, oh yeah, yeah.、Uh, Caesar, Caesar, Caesar and Cleopatra. Yes, I I cannot watch that movie. I cannot get five minutes into that.、Movie. Why? Why is that? Because because it's、um, it's Vivian Lee and I forgot the guy's name who plays Caesar. He's wonderful. I love the actors involved. But what happens is, is that Vivian Lee plays her like an idiot, and so she's this giggly girl who meets Julius Caesar and just is kind of, and she's turned into a baby basically. And I'm thinking, wait, by the time Caesar met her, she just raised an army and was marching on her own country to take over, to you know, to wrestle power back from her brother. And in the movie, he actually calls her kitten. Do you do you think that They'll be telling the story about Cleopatra in 2050 or 2180. Absolutely, because what I mean, how could you not? You've got everything, right? You've got, you've got. It's a, it's a soap opera. <laughs>、um, you've got politics. You've got world conquerors. You've got love affairs. You've got, you know, split ups. You've got,、uh, you know. It's just yes. I think there's a. An endless fascination with these characters, in the same way that we will still be talking about Julius Caesar,、um, you know, in in twenty one fifty or eighty or whatever, because they're they've almost become archetypes. And back to Caesar for a second, you know, when my son was he was doing a report on Caesar when he was in the sixth sixth or seventh grade, I can't remember when they、um, when they first most schools first start studying. More in depth ancient history, and I guess being the nerd mom that I am, and I said, "Hey, why don't I, why don't you read some Plutarch and let me just read a little bit about about Julius Caesar, what he says, you know, and explain the primary source." And it was a little, it was tough going, but at one point, it was like the light went off because he went, "Oh my God, this is like Star Wars!" Oh. <laughs> <laughs> This is like Star Wars, and and, go, and you know, and Senator Palpatine who wants to take full control, and he just like I can't even remember the connections he made between、uh, you know these these politics where the future of of、um, of the world you know are at stake that he completely saw it,、um, and that's why I think they're they become almost archetypal because they reflect that kind of major personalities, major. Uh, politics and, and changes. So,、uh, so yeah, I do think not just Cleopatra, but you know Caesar, Antony, and Hannibal, and all, all the the big names. Well, I, I want to thank you for being on Ancient Rome Refocused. I really appreciate it. I thoroughly enjoyed your book, and、uh, we're looking forward to the next、uh, the next book that you write. And I hope you have a good day. Thank you so much. I, I enjoyed this very much.、Um, And I enjoy your newsletter and your postings as well. So I, I appreciate. I'm a fan. Thank I, you. I appreciate it. Thank you. That concludes this episode. See you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused.